Wow, what a gospel lesson we have for today, huh? This is one of those ones. We see that the point in this lesson is that you cannot serve both God and money. So seeing where this ends up, let's go backwards to see how we get to that conclusion. There are three themes that we see in this parable which capture our attention primarily. The word squander, the word dishonesty, and the concept of being faithful. Let's start with this idea of dishonesty. We would be right, I believe, in looking and reading this parable to conclude that we cannot have wealth honestly. We can have it legitimately, but we can't have it honestly. Legitimacy and honesty are two different things. We all know this. We know this in our depths of our being, especially when we recognize that the wealth that we have may not have been, it might not be fair, right? How is it that we make sense of, I have this, you don't have that. Something is not fair. And it's out of a sense of gratitude, I believe, and humility for having more than we deserve, we definitely know that, that we will talk about being blessed. The manager in our gospel lesson today is dishonest because he is using his boss's money for his own benefit. He is thinking nothing of what his boss wants. He never has. For the report came to him that he had been squandering it, and indeed he knows that he has. He could really care less about what his boss's priorities are. And now that he's on the way to being fired, he cares even less what his boss's priorities are. So he decides to refigure his boss's debtors by changing the amount that they owe their boss, his boss, quickly. He uses his boss's money as if it's his own. And that is what makes him dishonest. The second word that jumps out to us is up at the start of the story, that word squander. Because we have a little trouble when we get to the part of the story where he's commended for what he's done. After we realize he's not really that great a guy because he was squandering what his, the rich man had entrusted to him. So how is it now that the rich man is praising him for canceling the debt? When someone squanders something, they don't use it appropriately or to its best purpose. They waste without thought or consideration. It's not an accident, their waste. It's just a decision not to care, a casualness, a disregard. So it makes me wonder, as I read this parable, how well do we know the rich man, the one to whom everything belongs? We can deduce by the rich man's commending of the dishonest manager that he's generous. For he just noticed that the dishonest manager has cut these bills in half, and he commends him for his shrewdness. It must mean that this rich man likes to forgive debts. The rich man knows that, of course, he's owed all of this, and yet he decides not to demand it. He forgives the burden of the debt. 
This word squander shows up in some other places. Perhaps it rings true to you from the story of the prodigal son or the prodigal son. That's a whole nother sermon. This idea of squandering, and we see this word show up even in our Book of Common Prayer in the service of reconciliation. The person who is making a private confession begins with these words. Holy God, Heavenly Father, you formed me from the dust in your image and likeness and redeemed me from sin and death by the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ. Through the water of baptism, you clothed me with the shining garment of his righteousness and established me among your children in your kingdom. But I have squandered the inheritance of your saints and have wandered far in a land that is waste. And so I do now confess. The third phrase that jumps out to us in this parable is that idea of being faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? The conclusion of our reading today brings it to our attention. We are faithful when we use all that God has created as God would want it to be used. We are faithful when we live in God's generosity, realizing that everything belongs to God. We receive it and we pass it on in God's economy. We own nothing. Like the dishonest manager, though, we forget that we have been given. What we have been entrusted with doesn't belong to us. We're dishonest, every single one of us, just like him, and thinking that whatever we've been put in charge of is ours to do with what we please. Because you see in our parable today, the dishonest manager, what he does with the bills is still for his own benefit. He still isn't thinking about the man he works for. He's thinking only about himself. Still, still he is only thinking about himself. Yet the rich man praises him because he's finally done two things, even if it's accidental. One is that he has realized that all things are connected, that all things are connected, and the other is hopefully that he's discovering that the rich man is generous. When the dishonest manager squandered the rich man's holdings, he lived only for himself. He didn't think about the generosity of the rich man towards those he lent to. He took the rich man's riches and did whatever it was he pleased. And this is why the rich man, God himself, discharges the manager of his duties. He does not want a manager that does not make decisions with his riches in the way that he himself would prioritize and choose. And in a turn of events in this parable, the dishonest manager finally does do what the rich man chooses. So we're invited, I think, from this parable to consider ourselves. I ask you, where do you find yourself on the scale of dishonesty? Where do you locate yourself on the spectrum of forgiveness? Are you near the end of accidental forgiveness or more toward the side of intentional forgiveness? My dear people, I recognize 
that it may be painful to realize how dishonest you are. I know it's painful. It's painful when I realize how dishonest I am. It may be painful to admit that you squander riches rather than practicing passing on the forgiveness and the abundance which the rich man wants to share. Yet if we look away too quickly from our pain and discomfort, we fail to see a way forward through the pain. If we turn away from the pain to the comfort that we know, we fail to see that it doesn't have to be this way. If we look away too quickly, we fail to see that God can make a way where we thought there was none. And ultimately, that all the people have what they need, which includes us. This is possible in God's kingdom. Believe it or not, by journeying into and through the pain of recognizing our own sinfulness, our own hoarding, our own dishonesty, by recognizing that and confessing it, we actually grow in compassion and freedom. This is the promise that Jesus does for us. That's what redemption is. I want to share with you a couple pieces of passages from this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. In case you didn't know, you gave me this for my 10th anniversary of serving here as your rector. Thank you for this gift. Robin Wall Kimmerer writes this about Lewis Hyde's research on this idea of Indian giver. She says, this expression used negatively today as a pejorative for someone who gives something and then wants to have it back actually derives from a fascinating cross-cultural misinterpretation between an indigenous culture operating in a gift economy and a colonial culture predicated on the concept of private property. When gifts were given to the settlers by the native inhabitants, the recipients understood that they were valuable and were intended to be retained. Giving them away would have been an affront. But the indigenous people understood the value of the gift to be based in reciprocity and would be affronted if the gifts did not circulate back to them. Many of our ancient teachings, speaking of indigenous people, counsel that whatever we have been given is supposed to be given away again. From the viewpoint of private property economy, the gift is deemed to be free because we obtain it free of charge at no cost. But in the gift economy, gifts are not free. The essence of the gift is that it creates a set of relationships. The currency of a gift economy is, at its root, reciprocity. In Western thinking, private land is understood to be a bundle of rights, whereas in a gift economy, property has a bundle of responsibilities attached. <coughs> We are realizing the need to consider a different way of relating to each other, a different type of economy, and perhaps that's why this text can open up for us in a new way. God created a gift economy, and we're part of that economy because we're part of God's creation. We do live in a private property economy. Thus, there's no way that we cannot sin. To grow in giving and receiving the gifts of God, which includes forgiveness of hurt and pain, we must abide in God's love. We don't have the strength to do all of this. 
And because the world has structures that distract us from the ways of God, our ability to live in generosity of God can only happen by sitting in God's presence, nurtured by the faithful who have gone before us, demonstrating this as we read in scripture and the saints teaching us to pray. By doing this, praying and studying of scripture, we begin to remember ourselves as the created beings that we are. God provided for us and will continue to provide us, provide for us, and we can live more truthfully in that reality. Through all of the activity of the world, it's easy to forget that we have been entrusted with God's generosity. We have long to-do lists and a lot of demands and hard decisions to make. And yet we're reminded in our text today that if we're not faithful with a little of God's generosity, then why would God entrust us with more of God's generosity? The text says, who will give you what is your own if you can't handle well that which has been entrusted to you? And what is our own? The freedom and joy to live in the abundance of God. That's what we discover is our own. There's one other little portion of this book that I want to read to you. It's found in the same chapter where the author speaks of a dream that she had. I dreamed not long ago, she says, of that market with all its vivid textures. I walked through the stalls with a basket over my arm, as always, and went right to Adida for a bunch of fresh cilantro. We chatted and laughed, and when I held out my coins, she waved them off, patting my arm and sending me away. A gift, she said. Muchas gracias, señora, I replied. There was my favorite panadera with clean cloths laid over the round loaves. I cho chose a few rolls, opened my purse, and this vendor, too, gestured, me away, gestured my money away as if I were impolite to suggest paying. I looked around in bewilderment. This was my familiar market, and yet everything had changed. It wasn't just for me. No shopper was paying. I floated through the market with a sense of euphoria. Gratitude was the only currency accepted here. It was all a gift. It was like picking strawberries in my field. The merchants were just intermediaries passing on gifts from the earth. I looked in my basket. Two zucchinis, an onion, tomatoes, bread, and a bunch of cilantro. It was still half empty, but it felt full. I had everything I needed. I glanced over at the cheese stall, thinking to get some, but knowing it would be given, not sold, I decided I could do without. It's funny. Had all the things in the market merely been a very low price, I probably would have scooped up as much as I could. But when everything became a gift, I felt self-restraint. I didn't want to take too much. And I began thinking of what small presents I might bring to the vendors tomorrow. The dream faded, of course. But the feelings first of euphoria and then of self-restraint remained. I've thought of it often and recognize now that I was witness there to the conversion of a market economy to a gift economy, from private goods to commonwealth. And in that transformation, the relationships became as nourishing as the food I was getting. Across the market stalls and blankets, warmth and compassion were changing hands. There was a shared celebration of abundance for all we'd been given. And since every market basket contained a meal, there was justice. Do you hear in her dream the conclusion of Jesus' teaching? 
We cannot serve both God and wealth. Can you feel how we got here? Everything is a gift. By living in God's generosity, we begin to realize this truth in a way that allows us to have what is ours. We have the great sense of living in abundance and relating to one another with the joy and freedom of that reciprocity. This is the things heavenly, I believe, we're invited to consider in our opening collect as it's written today. Just like Robin Wall Kimmerer, we begin to realize that the relationships are as nourishing as the food. My dear people of St. Stephen's, as we kick off this new year, we're invited to connect with one another, to receive all that God has to offer us in relationship with one another. Many opportunities we put before you, the staff and the lay leadership of the church, to grow in your faith through the study of scripture and in the study of prayer, so that you might realize a new way, a new joy of living the new economy, which is the ancient economy of God, that everyone has what they need. This is what we come together to remember and to celebrate, to encourage one another in. May we do so today and for the days to come. Amen. <laughs>